quest for knowledge. They're on your side. You can't deny. They're the Bruniks. Alright, welcome back everyone. We are on episode 8 of the Socialism Series. In today's episode, I will cover Moses Hess. Hess was born in 1812 and died in 1875. He had two main topical fixations in his writing. The first one was Zionism, big fan, and the second one was Communism, also a big fan. On the Zionism front, his most famous writing, which was published in 1862, was titled Rome and Jerusalem. In it, he, among other things, advocates for the creation of a Jewish commonwealth in Palestine. These Zionist writings seem to be, seem to get him kind of top billing in the way he's understood today. Like uh, people who know who he is would say, oh, Zionist, he's a Zionist guy. Um, indeed, in, in 1950, Right, so some 80 years after he died, his body was actually transferred to the cemetery of the first Israeli kibbutz. So he's a big deal in Zionism. Despite uh, that fixation, or I guess the kind of what people think of him today, in his actual life, he seemed to spend a lot more time on socialism and communism than he did on Zionism. Um, he was actively involved in the German radical movement. Uh, of of his period and spent most of his life as a socialist exile living in France. So I suppose that would make sense. Uh, Zionism was maybe not exactly a super hot topic in the 1850s, whereas socialism was. Um, so uh, in practical terms, he spent more of his life, uh, I guess, doing socialistic things than I don't know what you would exactly do to do Zionistic things in this period. Um, Hess was a major influence on and contemporary of Karl Marx. Uh, they were both German socialists running in similar circles and writing at the same time. Um, as I've been detailing throughout this socialism series, so much of what is celebrated in Marx's writing was actually Marx repeating ideas he had picked up in earlier socialist texts. Um, and this is especially true with Marx and Hess. Um, and that's not meant to be a knock on Marx, but this is an intellectual history podcast. So, you know, um, let's let's trace the ideas if we can um, and not attribute them all to the one great man, um, as great as he may have been. Uh, when jumping into Hess, uh, the, well, <laughs> into his socialist writings, if you want his religious writings, uh, you know, I, I don't know where you would jump in on there. I think he, I think it's, uh, what's the big one? The Holy History of Mankind, uh, in which uh, I have not read this book, but I did read the description of the book. Uh, and the description of this book was, uh, uh, it was described as an unusual synthesis of Judaism and Christianity. <laughs> I have no idea what that could mean. Um, but uh, hey, I'm sure it's fascinating. Look, you know what? These guys, they were a little strange. The people who wrote this stuff, especially pre-Marx, a little strange. A lot of oddballs, a lot of goofballs doing this. You know, that's how it goes sometimes. Maybe think about that a little bit when you think about, uh, I don't know, contemporary movements. And you're like, ah, why are these fucking goofballs and weirdos? Maybe it has always been such. Um, 
So, yeah, if you're into that, then go read the, uh, uh, what did I say it was? The Holy History of Mankind or something. Yeah, The Holy History of Mankind. If you're interested in the socialism, which is what we are interested in this podcast, then you want to, I would say, start at the pamphlet that he wrote, which he titled Consequences of a Revolution of the Proletariat. This is a little pamphlet. Um, He wrote a few other things as well. This one's pretty short. Um, This pamphlet was published in 1847, which was, and this is very notable, one year before the Communist Manifesto, right, written by Marx and Engels, and 20 years, of course, before Capital was published. So we're right on the precipice of the Communist Manifesto. If you've ever got any exposure to Marx, you know, in your college classes or whatever, they'd probably assign that to you. One year. We're almost there. One year before then comes out this pamphlet. Now, this pamphlet, which again is titled Consequences of a Revolution of the Proletariat, this pamphlet is quite remarkable in that it contains many of the things we will eventually go on to associate with Marx. And uh, although I'm very tempted to read the entire thing to you, I will restrain myself a little bit and uh, uh, try to pull out some highlights uh, with an eye especially towards the quote-unquote Marxist parts of the pamphlet. So... Let's begin. Hess starts this pamphlet off uh, very, you know, he, he he starts it off with a bang, and I appreciate that. No fucking around. Let's just get straight into it. So it goes like this. Quote, in order to be clear about the consequences of a revolution, we should first acquaint ourselves with its preconditions. Let us then recapitulate them. As we have seen, it is big industry which ultimately possesses all the means for the overthrow of the existing social organization that rests on private industry, private commerce, and private property. It is that which creates the revolutionary class and creates unity against the bourgeois class. It is that which makes it subjectively possible for the proletariat to cast off its yoke by providing it with a consciousness of its situation. Finally, it is big industry which also brings about the objective material means for a social upheaval by creating such a surplus of unutilized instruments of production that it is extremely easy to produce through them abundantly all that we require once the obstacles which today hinder production at every turn are removed. So here he's talking about why he thinks the capitalist economic system of his time is creating the conditions for a revolution. And the reason is that in that system... We have the rise of an industrial sector that simultaneously creates an industrial proletarian class, right? This is in contrast to the prior economy where you had more agriculture, peasants, serfs, whatever, right? This new industrial system, this big industry, which he puts in capital letters, big B, capital B, capital I, big industry. The big industry creates this self-conscious industrial proletarian class and also creates an abundance of productive potential right, through capital investments, um, and, you know, these factories are very productive, or at least potentially very productive, right, these innovations and capital investments, it creates this abundance of productive potential that could easily be seized and used to produce things for proletarian consumption. So today we call this account of things historical materialism, and attribute it primarily to Marx. Um, if you go on to the historical materialism Wikipedia page, I, do, I don't think, I, I, I scanned it, I don't think you see Hess on it. Um, but here it is. One paragraph summed up pretty nicely. Now, at the end of the quote that I just read, 
he mentions that the capitalist economic system, despite creating enormous productive potential, seems unable to actually fully realize that potential. Again, this is, this is also the key to historical materialism, which we will get into, right? or Marx's theory of history, for a less uh, intimidating uh, phrase, which holds that economic systems evolve whenever the productive potential of the economy is being held back by the current system. So it's not just that it would be wise for the proletarian to seize things. It's not just that it would make their lives better because they would have more consumption and more control. It's also that the continuation of economic growth and innovation requires this kind of revolution in order to clear out the obstacles to growth and innovation, right? So this is, uh, I think this is part that, except if you're real hardcore into Marx and all that kind of stuff, I think people kind of forget, and and, and also because the phraseology is so different then, but like the real idea of historical materialism is that economic growth, like when there are things that are standing in the way of it, those things get removed, right? And what they're trying to theorize here, what Hess is trying to theorize and later with Marx is that the way the capitalist system is organized, like the way it works, it's actually impeding economic growth. And so history will march on and anything that stands in the way of economic growth will be flattened and removed, right? And so that, that includes capitalism. It's got to go because economic growth, it must flow. Um, so what are the obstacles in the current system that are holding back economic growth, right? What are these hurdles that he talks about? Now, Hess gives two specific obstacles, right? Um, here's the first one. I've actually mixed them up a little bit because the writing was a little un, uh, uh, disorganized, um, but uh, so I've organized it for him a little bit better, I think. So here's, here's obstacle number one. I'm just going to quote from him. So long as production is in the hands of private individuals, so long as exchange of products is similarly in private hands, one can never know how much or how little should be produced in order to satisfy the needs of consumers and not provide the world market with more or less goods than are being demanded or can be sold. This brings about the constant fluctuations in the prices of goods. Times of prosperity are followed by bad times. Booms alternate with so-called commercial crises. Regularly, the latter follow the former. Because private industry and private commerce cannot calculate the need of the world market under our contemporary conditions, production follows all kinds of omens and false symptoms. If goods are in demand on the world market, everyone seeks to exploit the boom as much as possible. Production soars. Buying is done on a speculative basis, i.e. one hopes to be able to resell the goods later with profit. Eventually, it becomes evident that the world market suffers from surfeit. Then everything becomes suddenly soft as they say in business circles. Prices of goods fall below their cost of production. Industrialists who do not want to lose by continuing to produce lay off workers. Consequently, the worker himself sinks below his cost of production. He becomes soft. No longer does he receive for his labor what he needs in order to exist. Hence, a new cause for the diminution of consumption. The commercial crisis deepens. Merchants fail, cannot hold out, go bankrupt. Less and less is being consumed. Even less is being produced as fear grips all industrialists and speculators. Due to lower production, the commercial crisis reaches its end. At last, the world market shows a tendency for rising prices for goods. The few goods which are still around are being sold out. Once again, the hope for profit smiles at the capitalists. Once again, production is resumed. So he's describing here the crisis-prone, boom-and-bust cycle of capitalism, right? Due to incomplete knowledge and lack of planning, capitalists end up producing too much 
or not the right stuff. They then end up taking big losses due to these incorrect guesses, right? As they try to satisfy the market, they make these incorrect guesses and produce this big glut, and then they have to take these huge losses. And when they have to take these huge losses, that sets off a negative feedback loop where they try to cut costs and they lay off workers. But once you do that, they just result in a further reduction in consumer spending because now the workers don't have wages to spend. And then a further round of cost cutting and a further round of layoffs and on and on it goes until the economy, I guess, has, has, has hit some kind of bottom and then the up cycle begins again. Um, this is somewhat similar to Marx's theory of overproduction as a cause of capitalist crises and is also not that much different from theories of the business cycle that are taught in mainstream macroeconomics these days. So uh, to go back up, right, he's not just like, this is bad, this sucks. Remember, he's got a, although he doesn't use these terms, he's got a historical materialist sense of history, right? And so he's saying, this boom and bust, it's not going to be good for economic growth, right? It's an impediment to economic growth. And the boom and bust is inherent into the way capitalist systems are organized. And so we're going to have to get rid of capitalism and go to a system that doesn't have this boom bust situation. Um, that's the only way for economic growth to continue. And not again, not as a normative thing necessarily, but just that's how that's how history unfolds. Um, let's see. Okay, and then he has a second obstacle. So that's the first obstacle: boom bust, boom bust, ton of waste in the boom bust, right? And the recessions and pain, all the layoffs and shit like that. Huge waste. So that's the first obstacle to uh, growth and, and producing as much as we possibly can. And then we have the second obstacle, which goes like this. All right, here he is. Quote, why then is what is being produced today not being consumed? Whence this overproduction, this surplus in the midst of shortage? Well, as we have seen, the more progress private industry makes, the more private capital is concentrated in individual private hands. The more the property lists are forced to sell their personal labor power to the property owners in order to acquire their most elementary means of livelihood. Yet the worker who is forced to sell himself, or what is the same, his labor power, <laughs> labor power, <laughs> uses the phrase right there, um, yet the worker who is forced to sell himself, or what is the same, his labor power, becomes a commodity. His value follows the same economic laws as those of any other commodity. The progress of industry, the division of labor, the ever-developing instruments of production, the competition against machines as well as among the workers themselves, all these make the worker, as they make any other commodity, cheaper, and on average reduce his value to that of his costs of production, to the costs of his bare existence. Hence, the worker cannot, on average, consume more than he needs for the continuation of his existence. He is not supposed to think of satisfying all his needs or to develop the totality of his inclination, capacities, and powers. Dot, dot, dot. Go to a different part of the text. We have now seen what hinders production at present. It is not the lack of forces of production. It is the lack of purchasing power. The mass of the people is a commodity whose price most of the time is soft and never rises much above its production costs. This is the reason why at present not more is consumed than can be produced. Why production is limited both in its quality as well as quantity. Only when consumption rises can production be increased. 
yet consumption cannot in the long run be increased, neither quantitatively nor qualitatively, let let alone be improved, so long as the worker is a commodity, so long as his value is regulated by the economic laws of commodity prices. Only when the workers are no longer soft will production cease to be soft and all the needs of man and the needs of all men be richly satisfied. Okay, so the argument here is that in a competitive capitalist economy, there are lots of factors that tend towards pushing, um, well, they do two things, right? You increase productivity and you increase capital investment, right? The productive powers of the society get better, right? You become able to produce more things. But at the same time, there are elements of this technology, elements of uh, increasing productivity, increasing capital investment that actually put downward pressure on wages. And worker wages are essentially pushed down to subsistence level, right? So he keeps saying, hey, you know, commodities, the price of a commodity is the cost of its production, right? In a competitive economy, it's supposed to be that way. Well, what's the cost of producing labor? The cost of producing labor is the amount of money that's needed to like keep a person alive, and able to get to work each day, a little bit of money for housing and food and stuff. And so if the price of a commodity is is the cost of producing it and the cost of producing human labor is the cost of bare existence, then in fact wages will tend towards bare existence and they'll stay there. They're not going to go up. And in fact, it's going to be even harder to get them to go up as we have robots and AI and mach- you know, he's already talking about that shit, right? If you think that shit's new. You know, all that shit's going to come in and it's going to prevent wages from rising, right? So you wind up in this situation where you have more and more productive potential in, this, in, the, in the economy, right? But no corresponding rise in purchasing power, right? Because the wages don't go up. And so without a rise in purchasing power, there's no way to actually use the productive potential because there's no one who can buy the output. So you end up with all this unused productive potential, Essentially because you don't have people who are able to buy it, and if people can't buy it, then it's not going to be produced, right? Now, the idea that worker wages will be pushed to subsistence levels is frequently attributed to Marx. In fact, I saw a tweet from Matt Iglesias a couple of weeks ago in which he's like, ah, oh, one of the big problems with Marx is he thinks wages won't rise above the subsistence level. Um, uh, did he believe that? Uh, uh, you'll see, I guess, when I get there. I there's a strong arguments that he didn't that Marx did not actually believe that, even though that's how it's frequently taught. There's a, I've seen some good, 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 uh, uh, right secondary literature that you know pieces together some quotes in which you're like, shit, I don't think Marx actually believed that, even though that seemed to be a big part of what people understood his theory to be. Um, but anyways, there's some um, overlap there. Um, So we have these two things that are preventing the full utilization of the productive potential of the industrial economy, right? The booms and busts, and then the lagging purchasing power. Those are the two problems. And if we could fix those, GDP would fucking double or whatever. I don't know how much he thinks it would increase, right? But that's his concern, right? Purchasing power is too low. The booms and busts, those are dragging down GDP. They're dragging down the rate of growth. And we got to fix those things. Um, Again, not as a normative thing, but like, this is how history works, right? So now the question is, how do we fix those things? How do we actually unlock and use all the awesome power of this new industrial sector, which is being held back by the constraints of capitalism? Here's Hess, quote, 
Where should the workers start so as not to be soft? Again, soft, he's talking about their uh, price, their wage, right? How, how do they get higher wages, basically? <laughs> uh, answer, they must cease to be a commodity. They must cease to sell themselves to Monsieur Bourgeois. But what should they live on after they cease to sell their labor in exchange for money to Monsieur Bourgeois? What an extraordinary question. From what do Monsieur Bourgeois themselves live? They live off their capital, from the profit and interest spewed by it. What is capital? Stored, accumulated labor. Have the owners of capital produced their own labor? No, they had the workers produce it on their account. Well then, will the workers not be able to produce for themselves what they can produce for Monsieur's Bourgeois for their account? No, in order to produce capital, one has to possess capital in one's own hands. One needs to have enough means of existence in stock until one has created new means of existence through work. Secondly, one needs to have the means for production, the instruments of production, the tools of labor. As everyone knows, the workers do not possess any capital, nor do they have sufficient means of existence during work at their disposal. Even less so the tools of industry, least of all the instruments of production of big industry." All or nearly all capital is in the hands of the few, in the hands of Monsieur's bourgeois. Whence should the workers get the capital which is needed to create capital? Yes, this is the Gordian knot, which can be cut only by the sword. Out of their benevolence, Monsieur Bourgeois will not let capital flow out of their hands for the benefit of the workers, much as they praise the common weal, the welfare of the laboring class, and repeat all other philanthropic turns of phrase, even the most philanthropic bourgeois will not let themselves be moved in this direction. A revolution, that is the tacit condition, which must precede this. One has to prove this to these gentlemen with striking arguments, because if the arguments are not striking, in italics, they prove nothing. One has to prove them with striking arguments that they have to submit to the revolutionary measures which will be undertaken by a central administration set up by the workers. These measures can be either directly aimed at achieving their goal by transferring all instruments of production, including petty as well as big industries, into the hands of the workers for social production, or be of the kind that would lead to it gradually. It is unlikely that after a revolution one would immediately resort to direct measures, since in order to carry them out, at least the majority of the whole people should agree to produce for the common account. Since an agreement could be amassed, excuse me, such an agreement could be assumed to exist at best among the workers of big industry, i.e. only among a part of the whole population. So it seems, <laughs> according to Hess, that revolution... Uh, which he defines in a bit of a slippery way, is the only way forward, right? So for workers to get the purchasing power necessary to really prop up the economy and make it go, they need to cease to be subsistence wage commodities and instead get control over the whole productive apparatus, the whole means of production, uh, which will enable them to get pay hikes that let them have the purchasing power that we so need to stimulate growth. Um, they can't exactly rebuild the economy from scratch and set up their own parallel firms where they gradually capitalize and invest and create like a co-op sector or whatever, because to do that, you already need to be in possession of some capital, right? Which they aren't. So, you know, this is kind of an implicitly a, a bit of a, an attack on these models where workers go off and build their own co-op or communes or whatever. This is being rejected by Hess as missing the fact that workers don't have the capital needed to do that effectively. 
right? So the only way to get the capital needed for this project is from the people who currently own it. And since they're not going to give it, you know, benevolently, what's left? Revolution, right? Now, in the last paragraph, well, let me emphasize this for a second. Notice, you know, again, we'll get to Marx and not everyone who's reading this knows everything about socialism and all the rest of this or who's listening to this. But like, it's so, I mean, all the concepts are here, right? He's talking about the instruments of production, the tools of industry, the workers need to come into possession of those. There's no alternative to that. Well, I mean, it's just, it's all there, right? It's a full-blown, um, you know, theory of proletarian revolution for historical materialist reasons via, you know, the seizure of capital from the bourgeois through revolution. You know, I mean, it's, it's all there, right? Um, now, in the last paragraph that I just read you, he doesn't necessarily say that this revolution needs to happen in one snap event. He allows for it to happen gradually and actually cautions that you may want to be a bit careful in how quickly and on whom you phase in the new collectivist economic institutions. Uh, so this is actually very similar to Proudhon in episode seven, if you listen to that one. Um, like Proudhon, he is hinting here that you know, this socialism or communism or whatever you're talking about, um, it's a good fit for the industrial sector, should be pretty easy for the industrial sector because of the way it's set up with the proletarian working class and, you know, uh, people, they, they're the propertyless workers who have only their labor to sell. It should be a kind of easy fit for the industrial sector, but for the rest of the economy and other producers like farmers and peasants and artisans, it's a little bit different. The story is a little bit different with them. And they might resent having their, you know, businesses and farms and whatever scooped up into this uh, kind of collective institution. Um, and so he's kind of cautioning here, right? He's like, well, you got to be a little bit careful. You got to maybe give them some time to adjust to this new world. Like, And so he says, you know, such an agreement could be assumed to be at best among the workers of big industry, but they're only a part of the population. So this is an interesting thing. And obviously, when we get into practical realities of socialism and the Soviet Union and stuff, we had uh, this issue presented. What do you do with the peasants? What do you do with the farmers? What do you do with, you know, they're not the industrial working class. Can they, and, you know. I, him and Proudhon both seem to be uh, uh, foreseeing a problem uh, which does in fact present itself, which is that although this is all very interesting and clever theory for the industrial sector, not so clear that people who aren't in the industrial sector, who, you know, the shoemakers and butchers and candlestick makers and, you know, and farmers are necessarily going to feel the kind of things that the industrial workers feel because... They're working in living conditions in, in relation to property and the market and all that is, is actually quite different. Um, so anyways, I thought I would just highlight that. Um, now, like I said, he opens the door for a gradualist approach to all of this. Um, and later on, he actually gives a list of right, program. Um, and so for the next bit that I'm going to read, I'm going to read each of these policy proposals, every policy proposal that he has in this uh, pamphlet. Um, and, and after I read each policy proposal, each of Hess's proposal, I'm then going to read one of the proposals from the 10-point political program contained in Marx's Communist Manifesto, which again was published one year after this Hess pamphlet. Right? So you got that? First I read a Hess proposal, then I read a Communist Manifesto proposal. 
And your job is to see if you can spot any similarities here, okay? All right, so here's Hess's first proposal. It's all short. All this shit's like one sentence long, right? Number one, progressive taxation of the capitalists. And here's the manifesto's second proposal. Quote, a heavy progressive or graduated income tax. So we got progressive taxation. Uh, here's Hess's second proposal. The partial or total abolition of the right of inheritance. Here is the Communist Manifesto's third proposal. Quote, abolition of all rights of inheritance. Here is Hess's third proposal. The expropriation of all princely, ecclesiastical, titled, and other estates which would become ownerless through the revolution, the proceeds of which will be used for, and then I'm going to put in brackets, public purposes. He has a list of public purposes, and we'll go into those, but that's the quote for comparison's sake. Okay? Here is the uh, Communist Manifesto's first proposal. The abolition of property and land and the application of all rents of land to public purposes. So, again, <laughs> the expropriation of land use the proceeds for public purposes in both of them. All right, Hess's fourth proposal, which is actually one of the ways he wants to use the proceeds from the expropriated land. So the way he writes is a little bit weird because he's, he, you know, these next three things in his proposal are, are uh, uh, connected directly to the expropriation of land, but the, and whereas in the manifesto, they're, they're not like nested that way, but you'll see the similarity nonetheless, right? So, after he's saying we're going to take all the land, okay, what are we going to use the money for? So one of them, uh, and this is his fourth proposal, the one way we're going to use the money is through, quote, the establishment of large-scale industrial or agricultural enterprises which should be open to all who wish to work. And now here we have the manifesto's seventh and eighth proposals, uh, which are number seven, extension of factories and instruments of production owned by the state, the bringing into cultivation of wastelands and the improvement of the soil generally in accordance with a common plan. Number eight, equal liability of all to work, establishment of industrial armies, especially for agriculture. So establishment of large-scale common industrial or agricultural enterprises, that's how Hess says it, and then the establishment of industrial armies, especially for agriculture, that's how Marx says it. Now we have Hess's fifth proposal, which, uh, again, is one of the things he wants to fund with the expropriated land. Here's his fifth proposal. Quote, the establishment of national education institutions at, at which all youth will be educated, taught, and vocationally trained at the state's expense. And here's the Communist Manifesto's 10th proposal. Quote, free education for all children in public schools. Marx said it was a little bit more uh, economical with his words. Um, give him that much. Here's Hess's final proposal, uh, also funded by expropriated land, uh, which is, quote, supporting all sick people and those incapable of working. This one, sadly, does not have a correlate in the manifesto, but it does have a correlate in Marx's critique of the Gotha program. There, Marx says that, uh, that before distributing income to workers, funds must be set aside for, quote, those who are unable to work, in short, for what is included under so-called official poor relief today. So what Hess and Marx are talking about here when talking about providing money to the sick and those unable to work is the welfare state. 
for some reason these days, many American socialists get extremely agitated if you argue for the welfare state and seem to think they're being extremely radical and based when they uh, say that actually you don't need a welfare state if you get rid of capitalism. This is not only false, it's also very much at odds with what socialists have thought uh, since pretty much the beginning of socialism, including uh, the top dog himself. Um, now, in the remainder of the pamphlet, Hess reveals himself to be uh, quite the partisan of uh, these gradualist approaches, right? Um, you know, you can revolutionary, do it in one one big shot, or you can do it in a more gradual way, in a reformist way. And Hess ends up indicating he's more of a fan of the reformist approach. Um, and, and he outlines his thinking on that this way. Here we go. Quote, these gradualist measures are by their nature only transitory they prepare a new social order and will recede into the background once the new social organization appears they transform the present organization of society in a twofold manner negative and positive negatively by undermining private industry positively by laying the foundations for a common industry which entails completely new living and production relations from those of present society even if only those ruined by competition join in the commonly owned industry, and even if for a short period of time after the revolution a not insignificant number of people would still be able to live off the interest or profit of their capital, in the long run no private industry will be able to survive once these measures are introduced. Nothing more is needed for the victory of commonly owned industry over private industry than the simple introduction of those measures now proposed by the radical social democrats." But once a government set up by the people openly declares war on private property in the interests of the people by establishing a massive national industry for the common account of all those who participate in it, once it provides itself with the means for the establishment of such a large-scale common industry of the people through progressive taxation of private property, limiting or abolishing the right of inheritance, and introducing other such measures which all attack private industry at its root by attacking capital, once it finally utilizes these means in order to develop all the capacities of the up-and-coming generation through public and free educational institutions so that all youth will be able to, to apply its various inclinations and talents in a commonly owned industry, what future would private industry then have? It would lack everything it needs for its further existence. Capital, men, both employers as well as workers, the means as well as the will. So the basic gist here is if the state simultaneously builds its own state-owned enterprises to produce the products that are currently produced by the private sector and goes after private capital through land expropriation, capital tax, and inheritance taxes, then it is inevitable that capital and production will in, in society will eventually be totally shifted out of the private sector and into this new public sector, this common sector. Um, has has a uh, so you know this is similar actually to um, like the Meidner plan in Sweden. I think I've talked about that before in here, right? Where Meidner was saying, "Hey, over time, we'll create these worker funds, and we will use a tax on corporations to gradually move corporate stock uh, away from its current owners and into the uh, worker funds, right?" And so we you kind of do both things simultaneously. You build up your own institution. In the minor case, it's these worker uh, funds. Um, and you, you siphon away from the private institutions. And in fact, you use the siphoning from the private institutions to help build the public institutions, right? And it's also similar, not to uh, 
tout my own writing here, but to my uh, paper, uh, the Social Social Wealth Fund for America, I think it was called. Um, I wrote that now, I guess, must be like four years ago or three years ago or something. Uh, and the Social Wealth Fund for America, what I propose is let, let's create a, a central fund that every American owns one share of. And to capitalize the fund, I have this whole list of taxes that we can use to just, you know, nab money from you know, the wealthiest people in America, right? There's a, you know, an inheritance tax, there's a script tax, there's a, a IPO tax. It's like all this stuff that's just meant to just kind of paper cut wealth away from the people who currently own it, which is mostly like the top 10% of America, and put it into this common fund. So it's very similar, like in broad strokes uh, to, to Hess's idea here, right? It's, it, there's no reason why you can't uh, kind of gradually to create the alternative common uh, enterprises that you want and gradually capitalize them by taking from the uh, private sector. So, um, yeah, I mean, Hess has a few other notable publications on socialism and communism, including one that is just titled Socialism and Communism. Um, but I think I've covered enough of Hess for now, um, especially if we're focused on like canonical contributions. Um, the thing that is most notable about Hess is that he basically wrote large parts of the Communist Manifesto a year before the manifesto was written. And Marx almost certainly read this uh, pamphlet. And really, he seems to have copied a lot of it. Um, I mean, not in a plagiarism way, I guess. I don't know. But and it's not like Hess came up with all these ideas either. You know what I mean? But it seems like Marx probably read uh, this and, and was heavily influenced by it. Um, we don't know this for sure, but we do know that Marx was familiar with Hess. They were both German, running in similar circles. Um, and, of course, the similarity between the texts in certain areas is pretty hard to, uh, uh, you know, deny. Um, in fact, in the collection of Hess's writings that I got for this uh, episode, uh, the one that's published by Cambridge, you know, with those, like, blue books, um, the editors of that uh, text actually dropped a footnote at one point in Hess's pamphlet um, that I just covered and, and note in the footnote that these measures appear in almost identical form in Marx's Communist Manifesto a year later. Um, so speaking of, the time has come. I am done with the pre-Marx socialists that I intend to cover. Um, obviously, there are more out there. Um, but, you know, I'm not going to cover all of them. I feel like I've done a pretty good job of getting you, getting you to this point, um, covering the notables. Um, and uh, so the next episode, and I probably episodes, will be focused on the big man, Carl himself. Um, I've not figured out a strategy for tackling that yet. Um, and it's a tough thing to do because of the volume of Marx's writing um, and the truly insanely large volume of secondary writing about Marx and how invested so many people are and have become in one or another interpretation of it. Um, but whatever, I will take my stab. And, you know, if you want to, you know, get mad at it, I guess you get mad at it. So stay tuned. Marx is next episode nine. Um, thanks for listening.